Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for intel, forecasts, and success strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull, and we have an incredible show for you today. We're going to talk about emerging trends in real estate. Now, this is an incredible report. It's put out every year by ULI and PwC, and we have some experts on, in Studio One here with us today. We have Mitch Rochelle. He's real estate practice leader with PwC. Mitch, thanks for being with us. And we have Andy Warren. He's director of real estate research with PwC. Andy, thanks for being with us again this Thank year. Thank you, Michael. Glad to do it. So, guys, first of all, to get us started, tell us a little bit about this report. What goes into it, and how long you guys been doing it? Just numbers-wise, I think we hit a record, Andy. Uh, we have 1,600 respondents to a survey, and 500 face-to-face -face interviews, which is exhausting. <laughs> but yeah. in this day and age of technology, a lot of the face-to-face -face interviews are, are virtual. But we take uh, the, the results of the report really come from both those two things. So the interviews um, give us the perspective and the insight, and then we go back and look at some data to try to make sense of all of that insight. And then the survey is what ranks a city number one or what ranks a city number two, uh, how we capture sentiment in the industry, uh, which we'll unpack uh, today, in today's show. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fantastic. And as you heard, we're going to talk about some of the top cities, some top bets for 2018 and moving forward. Uh, and I like how you use the data because you guys research the market all the time. You know, every day you're looking at that, but then you actually talk to people who are in the business and kind of see what everyone's saying. So it's a great report. We're going to have a link to it uh, below. If you're watching on YouTube or iTunes, look for a link at CREshow.com. And let's talk about some of the key points in here. Number one, navigating at altitude. What the heck's that? Mean? I mean, <laughs> that is a fancy way of saying people are comfortable with where the market is today and they've stopped worrying about the fact that we're going to have an imminent downturn, that the uh, expansion's gone on too long, something's got to go wrong. This year, as we talk to people, you get that sense that, okay, I don't see anything on the horizon that's going to tip us over a cliff. Uh, capital's still available. Uh, fundamentals are still pretty strong, few, few spots that we're watching, but they feel good about the market. So they're kind of settling in and looking at strategies to you know, go maybe another two, three years and just have stopped worrying about the fact that, oh, well, it's going to turn down next year. Next year's the year we turn down because it's been too good too long. Yeah. One of the things we do every year, and I think this chart will probably pop up, mm -hmm. is we ask uh, the 1,600 folks who respond to the survey, to, on a one to five scale, tell us how they feel about the prospects for profitability for the industry for the upcoming year, so in this case, 18. Um, we do it on a one to five scale. So one is abysmal and five is excellent. Uh, and if you merge good and excellent, last year the good and excellent were at 82%, uh, percent, and this year they're at almost 80%. So just to Andy's point, that sentiment uh, is remaining positive. But what's interesting here, and this is another chart we could put up there, uh, if you unpack the good versus the excellent, the goods are rising sort of at the expense of the excellence. And a couple of years ago, the excellent was about 40%. This year, it's just under 17%. So people are getting a little worried about the frothiness, but overall, the, the positive sentiment about the industry is continuing. And this is a broad spectrum of people that you're interviewing, right? This right. Just isn't just all developers who are positive yeah. by nature. <laughs> yeah, and brokers is, aren't positive by yeah, nature. Yeah, this hey. is, we, we try and touch, we touch on the capital providers, we talk about the uh, you know, uh, people that are actually dealing with the tenants. We actually talk to corporate real estate people who are actually using the space. So we're trying to, trying to touch all that and kind of temper that. All right, so let's talk about the second point. Long glide path to a soft landing 
Again, what's that mean? <laughs> <laughs> We're really long on the uh, yeah, yeah. airplane metaphors. <laughs> Andy, did you buy a plane? <laughs> I did buy a plane. <laughs> no, it just we got tired of a uh, uh, maritime-based. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we went out. Uh, it just kind of uh, it fits kind of into that same theme. We're still looking at, you know, it looks like it could be controlled. Do we have we hit a point where the markets are more efficient? more transparent, there's more people playing, there's more data available than ever before. So have we moved past the point of always being a boom bust industry? Will we just see where we can kind of manage that downturn? And yeah, it's gonna slow down, but is it more slow and controlled as opposed to, whoa, we're off the top of the roller coaster and going straight down. So. And that's what some people who maybe not been in the business more than yep. 10 or 15 years, maybe mm -hmm. that's what they look at. Well, uh, yeah. we saw a recession, that's what it's gonna be like again, yeah. right? Right, yeah. Yeah, well, if you look at your time period of your history, you know, it was, interest rates can only go down <laughs> and then we have the bust and then it's kind of that so it's is it a new market it's something that people are thinking about yeah but you know listen we've been around a long time yep. uh, collectively and if you think about it in our life in real estate interest rates have only gone down right mm -hmm. there's been some ups but for the most part I entered the real estate market when you had not only double-digit interest rates but they were high double digits right mm -hmm. so the, the first loan on my first uh, residence was 14%, so uh -huh. look at that. Um, one thing we do just, and this is an interesting measure of sentiment, we ask the folks who respond to the survey portion, what one word would they use to describe the industry for the upcoming year? And uh, the number one word two years in a row is competitive. And that really sort of speaks to where we are in this cycle, um, because the participants are, as, and as you appropriately asked Andy, it's not just developers, it's not just builders, it's not just brokers, it's really every walk of life in real estate. And all of them collectively are viewing it as competitive, whether it be competing for talent, whether it be competing for space, whether it be competing for opportunities, lenders competing for customers, borrowers competing with lenders, it, there's just all of that. Um, but if you look at some of the words that have jumped up in the last year, um, even though competitive, uh, treacherous, frenzy, troublesome, neutral, and sanguine. So there's a little bit of balance there. And I think that really speaks to sort of in a word, or in that case five, how market participants feel about the industry and, and where we are sort of in this glide path. So competitive is number one. What was number two? Cautious. Cautious. Measured, uncertain, and growing. Wow. So it's got a little yeah. different views. Yeah, yeah. little different views is for sure. We kind of look at it like maybe we've hit an efficient market where we've got about half the people feeling really good and half the people being a little nervous. Yeah. So yeah. it's just kind of. And, and one other thing, because uh, this is a cool graph for our YouTube uh, watchers too, is if you look at, go back to the Lincoln administration and look at all of the economic recoveries, one of the things you'll find is they're less, the, the peak to trough are less frequent and they're longer, right? So um, what, it, what it really tells you is, in this day and age, as the economy has become more global and more interconnected to other parts of the planet, right now, the US economy is benefiting from the growth in economies around the world, right? This is the only time, if you look at every developed nation on the planet, all of the economies, for the most part, are growing at the same time. Now, maybe China's not growing at the rate it was, but you have all of those economies growing simultaneously, really sort of helping each other. So we could be in this for a while. I know you're probably going to ask us what inning we're in later, but we're going to be in it for a while. <laughs> That's good. 
Well, and I also think it's interesting that you you brought up Lincoln. Was he a cool guy to hang out with? Yeah, I really, yeah. <laughs> he was. You know, no one's really brought that beard style back. <laughs> All right. But now, this is one I want to make sure my brokers are hearing. Um, working smarter and working harder. <laughs> so, uh, so what's that mean? The working smarter, working harder you know, with the technology, the generations kind of influencing who's coming into the workforce. We're just seeing people use space in a different way. And are we to the point where that's going to change how much space we actually need? Are we going to need less space per worker coming into the market going further, farther? And the second aspect of this, and one that really kind of jumps out at you, is the fact that the office stock in the U.S. is pretty old. And with all this new change in technology and the way people want to manage workflows and how people come and go and where they sit, do we have the properties that can meet that demand? And then you look at how much people spend have been spending on CapEx to kind of keep that current, it looks like it might be falling behind the curve a little bit. So part of the work harder, work smarter is going forward, very possible that investing in a current asset may be a much better investment than going out and acquiring a new building. Interesting. So you think that uh, people have to spend a little bit money, more money on the build-out and the upgrades of, yeah. of our existing stock? Well, if you look at it this way, in the last two decades, uh, we've added, we've grown our stock of office by about 20%. So looking at it an, another way, 80% of our office stock is older than the last two decades. So there's considerable uh, aging of our office stock. And to Andy's point earlier, and I think we have some cool charts on this too, the reality is we've underinvested in the existing office stock in terms of CapEx dollars. Whether they be elevators and modernizing elevators, whether it be bringing technology, bringing the pipe to the building, whatever it is, we've underinvested. So um, we're going to see something shake out in the office stock where if offices are going to be the places where office using jobs are taking place, they're going to have to become more modern because the, compet the competition is people working elsewhere in what would have previously been an office usage job. Okay, and you mentioned the square footage per employee and the adjustments there. So what are you guys seeing when you do this study and you, and you talk to participants? Mm -hmm. Are we still seeing that square footage number shrink or is that adjusted now and are people using more per employee? Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting point because the last three years, everybody you talk to when they say, well, we moved into a new space, and we took 20% less space than we had before. And I would, would say from the interviews, that hasn't changed. People are still doing that. Now, I think there's some confusion because people are having larger common areas because of the amenities that they have to provide to be attractive to workers in the market today. So we're seeing kind of a, a trade-off of that a little bit. But the trend does seem to be a little bit more towards continuing to shrink, even though, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later with the new generations coming in, there may be a little bit of a pushback against that open floor plan that allows you to squeeze people in. But by and large, going through the interviews, uh, we did not run across, I think one person said that they actually took more space per employee when they signed a new lease, and that was the first time, I've been doing this five years, that's the first time I'd heard anybody actually admit to that. Hmm. Well, that's interesting, too, because you think with the job market improving mm -hmm. and retention and recruiting becoming more, more. important, uh, and then 
millennials getting a little older, maybe some yeah. of these millennials don't want to be on a bench with headsets, <laughs> right? And they mm-hmm. want a little more space. space. And, and Andy Tees did, and I think we'll talk about it when we talk about generations. The fact of the matter is Gen Z, which is the 65 to 70 million um, individual cohort behind the millennials, their early indications is they want a door on an office. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> uh, so millennials wanted sleeping pods, and they. Yep, I don't know. Exactly. I don't. You know what's interesting? We're not convinced that millennials wanted that. Think about what happened during that period that the millennials came of age. The financial crisis came, so companies were trying to be incredibly more efficient with their space, and technology was their friend, which enabled them to be way more efficient with their space. Um, if you survey millennials and ask them what they want, some of the uh, creature comforts that exist in office space, they definitely want. But if you ask them if they wanted an office with a door, <laughs> I think they'd tell you they do. Yeah. Who doesn't want an office with a door? Because yeah. what's the first thing millennials do when they need to make a private conversation uh, happen? They go to a conference room and uh, you know hijack it to have yeah. a private conversation. Yeah. So. Well, it's easier to take a nap in your office if you can shut the, the door. door. It is. Put a door over your head. Put a chair over your head. For the, for the <laughs> record, neither Andy or I have ever taken a nap in the office. <laughs> All right. Well, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll have some more on what to expect from 2018, looking at emerging trends in real estate. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Build out the best all-in-one marketing tool for your brokerage. Learn how you can create marketing materials instantly and streamline your property listings process. Visit buildout.com. Excelligent, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit commercialsearch.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. This segment is brought to you by Bull Realty Asset and Occupancy Solutions. Visit bullrealty.com. Today we're talking about emerging trends in real estate 2018. An incredible report. It's put out by PwC and ULI. We have a link to uh, the actual uh, program. What do you call it? The, the study uh, right here on our website at uh, seriesshow.com. We have Mitch Rochelle and Andy Warren here in Studio One with us from PwC. And the next uh, segment is, is Procession of the Generations. All right. Tell us about that. So let me frame it with some technological <laughs> references, okay? So if you look at the uh, baby boom generation, what are some of the advents in technology that happened during their generation? The photocopier, the fax machine, the beeper, and Pong. Beeper. <laughs> <laughs> but if you think about the, all of those, uh, the, the, I think the biggest disruptor of office using jobs was the fax machine and the photocopier. I mean, if you watched the TV show Mad Men, you just saw this empty, this big sort of cavernous area lined with what used to be called secretaries that were typing away to make duplicate copies of something. You entered the photocopier and they totally disrupted that workforce. Uh, if you go to Gen X, uh, the PC really sort of came of age uh, during their life, cell phone, email, and uh, Mario Brothers, of course. That was their uh, uh, big thing. Uh, for the millennials, they had a tablet, the smartphone, social media, and uh, Super Mario 3D. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, uh, for Gen Z, you got wearables, uh, the chat bot, 
Um, and uh, we're going to go with the Super Mario virtual reality game that's going to be out there. But the fact of the matter is, technology has been the thing that sort of has defined all of those generations. And as they're in the workforce and they make workplace decisions, where to work, how to work, housing decisions, um, all of those are changing uh, with the generations. So that's uh, what this chapter is all about. Yeah, I mean, we have to escape where the puck's going, right? Exactly. Uh, that's kind of what this report's all about, is, is looking at that. <clears throat> now, the next one is, don't forget the baby boomers. I thought yeah. we, we didn't care about them anymore. <laughs> well, the interesting thing <laughs> about them. Unless we're in senior alley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're going to get to that. Aren't we all, all three of us are <laughs> yeah. baby boomers, oh, aren't we? Exactly. Yeah, easy. I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> and we all thought we'd be retired by now, yeah. which isn't happening, as we're finding out, is that, uh, you know, that a very large cohort getting older, uh, a couple things that kind of jump out talking to people. They're working longer, and part of that is the Great Recession kind of changed some financial plans, but also they're healthier and they're skilled and they're thinking, why retire? Or they can't sell their McMansion in the suburbs because there isn't a buyer pool for that yet. So that group we're seeing is going to be around longer. Well, if they're not just all suddenly going to pick up and go to Florida, <laughs> then are there other options for them? You know, we hear a lot about, okay, well, they're going to sell the house in the suburbs, move to the city, urban living. Well, and some of that is happening. But there's, we're kind of missing a step. What if you don't want to live in the city, but you do want to downsize? Seems to be a real shortage of kind of that uh, maybe age-restricted but active lifestyle housing in the market. And think with people working longer that that need is probably going to continue to increase. And you're now going to be balancing a workforce that is, you know, 65 to 70 million people entering, and you know the boomers are getting smaller every year, unfortunately. But that group is still fairly significant, sitting on this other side. So who may now get squeezed will be Gen X and the millennials again are going to kind of be caught between these two groups. And here's what's interesting, and I mentioned the third leg of the stool in terms of how we do emerging trends is data. So let's sort of jump back to data for a second. The Bureau of Labor Statistics defines the American workforce as workers 16 to 64. Uh, there's two flaws in that um, age band. One is my 17-year-olds are still not in the workforce. <laughs> but more importantly, yeah. at 64, people aren't leaving, leaving the, the workforce, workforce right? right? So if you, uh, if you look at the workforce participation rate, which has precipitously fallen over the last you know, generation, okay? The workforce participation rate is rising amongst people uh, 65 to 74. If you go back to 1994, it was just under, over, just over 17% was the workforce participation rate for that 10-year cohort. If you go to project it at the 2024, it's just under 30%. Wow. So the, the fact of the matter is uh, older workers, for whatever reason, uh, living longer, um, need the source of income, uh, rising costs of health care and other things in retirement, rising costs of housing potentially exactly. in retirement mm -hmm. is causing them to stay in the workforce longer, uh, and which is something we actually need. But it, when you look at the workforce participation rate that gets released on you know, Jobs Friday once a month, they're really ignoring, because uh, it's not in the stats, the fact that the workforce participation rate for older workers is rising, all of which I think is good for real estate, because if you look at the other side of it, the, the 16 to 64, with the shrinking because of technology, maybe because of loss of some jobs overseas, the fact of the matter is 
that that is taking away the demand for commercial real estate, taking away the demand for uh, retail real estate, uh, office real estate, and maybe to some degree industrial real estate. So um, this is actually a little silver lining here that uh, people are working longer in that baby boomer generation. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. It's the America's Commercial Real Estate Show here, and right. you talk about the aging uh, workforce. Uh, commercial real estate seems to have a big issue with that, exactly. right? I mean, you look at the average age mm -hmm. of some of the commercial real estate people, whether they're in asset management, yeah. property management, they work with funds, REITs, brokers, everyone, it seems like uh, we need to get some younger people, people. involved. Yeah. yeah, it's very much in that kind of real estate's in that you know, lower to mid-50s range for average age, which yeah. is pretty old when you think about it. Yeah, so all you young people, let's go. Let's get yeah. in commercial come real work, estate. Go work on. for Michael Barr yeah, 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 Come on, come on. All right, by the way, so I speak nationally, not just with emerging trends, mm -hmm. and I'll walk off the stage and literally somebody will come up to me and say, hey, you're the guy from the commercial real estate show. Yeah. So you have a pretty big reach. <laughs> Somebody once said to me, what's Michael Bull really like? <laughs> you didn't tell him, did you? <laughs> I certainly didn't. <laughs> All right, so the next one on the list from Emerging Trends in Real Estate 2018 is, it's different this time, isn't it? <laughs> so. It it is different, <laughs> and you're meaning yes. the cycle mainly. Right? Yeah, I mean the cycle and meaning the markets that people are looking at. Yeah. You know, and uh, this time, you know, we've hit the peak, and you know, and as people look at the report, they'll kind of see that. And we'll talk about markets a little bit later. But some of the gateway markets that people sought safety in five, six, seven years ago, when the market was beginning to recover, pretty pricey. And as one interviewee kind of put it, supply constrained markets kind of have the disadvantage of sometimes being demand constrained as well. So people are beginning to seriously look at some of these secondary markets. Uh, and not every secondary market, obviously. They're looking at the top markets. They're looking at the Dallas-Fort Worths, the Atlantas, the Seattles, kind of those big markets that have shown. But you know, let's be honest, those markets have been boom bust, which we talked about. Is that still a problem? But the, you know, more people are looking at them. Foreign capital is looking at them more uh, with more intent than ever before and part of that's the extent of the cycle being longer they have more time to kind of explore these markets and get comfortable with them and people don't like to invest in markets unless they're comfortable with it so the key will be think that this these markets will continue to be attractive if they don't mess themselves up it will all be if you don't overbuild and you know continue that kind of moderate trend we'll see more interest in these so in two three years we could be talking about the top 10 to 15 markets instead of the big six, which people have always been talking about. And, and what's really interesting is, and Andy touched on it, and Michael, you know this from your business, which is there are markets that are very attractive to foreign investors, and then there are markets that are less uh, attractive to foreign investors. Not that there's anything unattractive about them, but uh, often foreign investors have gone historically to the gateway markets. And they became very cap rate compressed, very high on a price per square foot basis. So investors, and to the point you made earlier, who participates in the survey, investors and participants started looking where are people not looking. Uh, the perfect case study I give you for that is Austin, Texas, which Austin broke into the top 10 in emerging trends maybe a decade ago. And no one really understood why, we can actually tell you why, but no one understood why and no one really took it seriously. Uh, Texas is a pro-business state. It's very, it, there's very low barriers to entry. And market participants saw 
the population growing there and said, hey, maybe this is a place to invest. Um, the point is, and we'll get to it in a, in a later segment, there are a lot of other markets that have those attributes that Austin, Texas has. And what Emerging Trends has been able to demonstrate over time is that people seek, seek out those markets, find them, and then stay there. And as, when we talk about it's different this time, talk to our audience that maybe has been in commercial real estate for 10 years. Are, is this cycle a little different? If we do, when we do, I guess, not if, when we do have some sort of downturn, uh, is it going to be different? Yeah. And why? Uh, I'm going to answer it one way. I'm sure Ant- yeah. Andy's going to answer it another way, which is if you look at the new additions to supply of commercial real estate um, over th- in, in this cycle, we're still adding to new supply at a rate that's considerably lower um, than it historically had been coming out of recessions. We're now later in the cycle, so we're now adding to supply at a slightly greater rate than the long-term average. But if you start looking at that um, in terms of its component parts uh, of retail, industrial, and office, you realize we're still historically adding to supply. We're adding to supply at a rate that's still um, in line with historical trends, if not a little bit behind uh, some historical trends. Yeah. And I think it's different this time, and we talked about the transparency in the market and people being more educated, more data available than we've ever had before. And that includes the capital sources. So maybe we don't have that point where all of a sudden uh, lenders get into a bind and whoop, they yank the chain out from everyone. So maybe that eases kind of that downturn and consequently probably benefits some of these rising secondary markets. So that's where we, Tongue in cheek, it's different this time because usually that's our major red flag. When you see that, <laughs> it's different this time. We automatically no, put a note next to the interview and say, "Crazy." When anybody <laughs> uses the absolute no. that it will never, never happen, yeah. I'd go yeah. out and do You'd the opposite. Do that. Right? Yeah. 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 So it's kind of it looks like you know it just uh, a little smoother transition. So yeah, well, it's certainly slower growth and coming out of recessions exactly. in the past, mm-hmm. and you know a little more subdued. Dude. You feel a little more comfortable, and I like what right. you said earlier. The kind of the window. Of opportunity has been a little longer. People can make decisions. You don't have to rush in and, and mm-hmm. do what you need to do. So, uh, well, we're going to take a short break. When we get back, we're going to talk about three more trends from emerging trends. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Are you a real estate agent? Hi, this is Michael Bull. Would you like consistent high income? Would you like to be the top producer in your office? Would you like to be known as the go-to broker in your market? Well, I have something for you. Visit CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. This segment is brought to you by Real Crowd. If you'd like to invest in real estate with, in, with crowdfunding, with experienced developer, check out realcrowd.com. Today we're talking about emerging trends in real estate 2018. This is an incredible report. You have to read it. We're talking about the highlights. We have Mitch Rochelle and Andy Warren here with PwC in Studio One. And the next segment here we have is housing at a tipping point. So what gives there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, here's the, the plain reality is we are forming households at a rate considerably greater than our net additions to housing stock, whether it be single family or multifamily. 
uh, a household formation, and often people in the audience get excited when I say this, is statistically when children move out of their parents' house. Right? <laughs> Andy's, got yeah, that, <laughs> Andy's got that going. Michael, you're just praying. <laughs> but in any event, uh, so we were forming households at a considerably faster rate. So we're actually undersupplied in terms of new additions to stock of both single family and multifamily. And what that's doing is it's driving the price up. We're actually the highest high watermark uh, in housing prices that we've really ever been. Um, and what's interesting is it's not a bubble. So most of the time when you look at uh, quick inflation of prices, you say to yourself, oh my God, it's getting a little frothy, it's a bubble. But the fact of the matter is we're not. Uh, if you look at Gen X and the boomers, we created a lot more housing stock for them at the time when they would have been buying. There's gonna be a cool chart that you're gonna see with a bunch of bubbles on it. Um, but for millennials, we haven't. And if you look at it this way, the millennial generation and Gen Z, which we talked about earlier, between the two of them are 150 million people. And if you divide that by two and figure um, that there's, well, maybe divided by three, we will not have created that much housing stock for them. The other thing that's happening is the baby boomers, as we said earlier, are living longer and maybe staying put longer. So they're not giving way in communities to the millennials by selling their home and going elsewhere. So that's what sort of got us at a tipping point. If you want to buy a starter home and you actually have the down payment and actually qualify for the loan, because that's still hard, uh, you may not be able to find the inventory because there's nothing on the market. Uh, in any given month, if you look at the inventory of new or existing homes, we're looking at four months supply, maybe at a, a max in the off season of five months supply. If you go back to historical peaks, we were at 12, 14 months supply. So Why are builders not building more quantity then? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question, Randy. Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, you you want to take that? I'm just kidding. No, go ahead. Uh, the, go ahead. I'll, the, I'll add in. The, the fact of the matter is uh, the price of land has gone up. Uh, the price of labor has gone up. Uh, the price of lumber has gone up. And lenders, the fourth L, uh, lenders haven't now, later in the cycle, they're there, but earlier in the cycle, they weren't. So um, the fact of the matter is they look at their opportunity to get a return. Uh, equity is not seeing the returns on investment because there's, while there's a wall of people who want homes, um, the marketplace isn't really price discovering at levels that make sense for new construction, okay? If you look at new homes versus existing homes, there's about a 30% difference in terms of the trading price of a new home versus the trading price of an existing home. And the fact of the matter is it just costs more to build those things. That's why we have this cottage industry of flipping. We have this industry, you know, there's all of this opportunity in fixer-uppers. Um, it's really just a return on investment thing. If you pull out the land component, and find a way to get land less expensive so that you can lower the price of new stock, I think it works because the lenders are there. The, the commodity price of lumber will regulate at some point. Labor remains a big issue, but the biggest uncontrollable cost really for um, builders is land and the land cost is just shot up. Yeah. And if we add a fifth L to that, we could add location to yeah. that. Before, when we'd get to this point in the cycle, Andy, I'm writing that down. you fifth would move out further where land was cheaper yeah. and then be able to buy. But the buyer pool today doesn't want to drive till they qualify. They want to be closer in. So we're seeing kind of a constriction on that, forcing people back to more dense areas. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, good yeah. points. Well, let's talk about the next issue. Retail transforms and stores remain. Yeah. 
So retail is a great topic <laughs> great today. Topic. You, you can't pick up the paper without seeing retail. Right. It's, Everybody's an expert, too. Yeah. And my favorite quote on retail is, the mall's not dead, it's just changing. Give it time to get decent. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're finding that, you know, people still want to shop in a store, and they still want to have that access, but how you reach that person that's coming to the store is changing, and it will have to continually evolve to keep that interest in the shopper, and it's experiential retail that people want. Uh, they don't want to just go and look around. So very interesting in terms of the amount of people and the amount of money they have to spend, and it, they just have more options on how they want to spend it today. And that is narrowing the field as to how retail responds and who succeeds and who does not. So for retail sales, um, we, we have a holiday forecast that's coming out, uh, which I can share that link also for your, for your audience. But what's interesting is we still have half of our um, retail sales taking place in a digital environment. But what's interesting is the digital environment is very experiential. So you can do so much more now um, digitally when you're shopping. You can price compare. You can see the color. You can even see what the glasses look like on your face. I mean, it's really amazing. There's... there's um, digital opportunities for custom-made clothing, which I still can't figure out how you can do that, but all of that stuff is there. So they've created a great, robust experience digitally. Now what's happening with the retailers, they have to figure out how to create that experience as well. Um, I think that there's two problems that exist in that world. One is merchandising, because they haven't really figured out how to get the right merchandise in the store that people will want to buy in the store, as opposed to buy um, online. And then the second thing is distribution, right? So if you're competing with something that shows up in your door the next day or the day after that, how do you compete in a, I call it stick and brick because we're real estate people, other people call it brick and mortar. How do you compete in a brick and mortar environment? So what they've been doing is they've been layering experience on to give something tangible that exists in a store that you can't get online. But what's happening is online retailers are uh, keeping pace with that and creating digital experiences that may be more um, um, desirable than the stick and brick. So it's going to be a long process. Listen, the fact of the matter is when you want to buy a gallon of milk, you're still going to go to a supermarket or a convenience store or a drugstore to buy the gallon of milk. There's still going to be essential staples that are retailed in a traditional fashion, but a lot of other elements are going to transform themselves. Well, I'll still have a cow in my yard. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Farm so, to table. Well, what did you say, like like three years ago doing this, you said you hadn't been to a grocery store ever in your life or something like that? Yeah, I mean, there's been long periods of time where I'm not in grocery stores. And, yeah. you know, in fact, I went in one the other day, and they were so excited to see me. When I walked down the aisle, they started turning on the lights all around me. <laughs> As I walked down the aisle, like, Michael, welcome back. Okay. Um, so what did your participants, was there a theme when you talked to your interviewees that are involved in retail about what they think about retail moving forward and retail real estate? Do you see anything kind of jump you out? Know, it's, it's interesting because retail continues to lag the other property types in terms of the outlook going forward. But the people that are actually active in retail are more positive about it. But really, it actually, it kind of goes back to the days where we're going, okay, we're getting rid of this maybe merchandise person, but we're putting a gym in. We're putting a food outlet in. And we're mixing and matching the food outlets. So I have a, maybe a high-end food outlet. I have a fast food. I have a fast casual. 
So people are thinking more and more about tenant mix than ever before as part of that experience beyond the fact of having concerts in the common area and things to draw people in and keep them there for a while. So. I, so the next brandy won't be discovered in, in a mall. In a mall, yeah, that'd be well, that'd be online anyway. Yeah, but it's kind of it's just the people that know what they're doing feel pretty confident that they'll be able to find something that works, and they've acknowledged that it's going there. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's well, interesting is just to interrupt for a second is the growth in retail had traditionally been tied to rooftops, right? We we added neighborhood and community uh, strip centers and even secondary malls where the path of growth was. Um, and Andy referenced before the last thing, which is location, we're not sort of going out there. So that's also a bit of a, a headwind. But what's interesting is if you look at where the retail is, how do we change the tenant mix? And that people are thinking differently. One of the biggest things that we're seeing across the country are these urban food mall things where you take a, just a traditional restaurant spot. You could even take a anchor, that big box that's just been dark for a long time in a power center, and you turn it into one of these food urban mall. food yeah. malls. It's a really, really hot trend. If you figure out what people want and what's working someplace else and you bring it uh, to your locale, the only place you could put that urban food mall is in retail because it could it, it, you could not do that um, alternatively. So um, there are opportunities. You just have to figure out what people want and how to really transform space into something that fits for that next use. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And, and speaking of opportunities, that's what we're going to talk about next. We're going to take a short break. And in Merging Trends in Real Estate 2018, PwC, ULI, the report, they talk about some best bets. Right, we mentioned earlier, you got to skate where the, the puck is going. That's what this is all about. Check out the report and stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. If you are a real estate agent, you do not want to miss this site, commercial, CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Today we're talking about Emerging Trends in Real Estate 2018. This is an incredible report put out by ULI and PwC. And we have Mitch Rochelle and Andy Warren here with us from PwC in Studio One. And we've talked about a lot of the trends, a lot of things you guys are seeing moving forward for 2018, but we want to know what to do with this information, <laughs> right? How can we make some money or maybe avoid some mistakes, right? So what are some best bets for moving forward from your emerging trends I'll start with the first. Well, evolve, it's the evolution of the, the the demand for housing, right? So we talked about it a little bit in the previous segment. The fact of the matter is, affordability remains the biggest concern in housing. So how do we create more affordable housing? And you can either push it further away where the land is cheaper, or you can make the thing smaller. And one of the things that's interesting is the advent of technology with 3D printing. Um, we're seeing a trend globally of making units smaller and smaller a lot of prefab construction. So um, you have to figure out the demand is there, there's a price point concern, so how do you evolve the housing stock to meet the demands of um, people with a limited appetite for 
stretching their budget. So some opportunities may be in kind of manufacturing this this housing and bringing right. it on site mm -hmm. and assembling it there. Yeah. Maybe tiny houses, uh, maybe these <laughs> micro apartments, Perfect. right? Yeah. We actually, and that kind of touches on something we've talked about in past years, is the shortage of construction labor, which is only going to be intensified this year with all the natural yeah. disasters and the construction labor that's going to be required to rebuild those. You start building houses in a controlled environment, suddenly we talked about some of the baby boomers retiring. Suddenly that guy who's a construction guy who's 58 to 62, maybe he stays on the job. So it kind of answers two questions in kind of helping move that forward. But it's really, it's a, a little bit of a Rubik's Cube to figure out how to bring the right housing to the market at the right price. And I, whoever figures that out is going to be a big winner. Yeah. Well, what about in uh, retail? There's obviously, there's a lot of flux in retail, a lot of change going on. Are there some opportunities there? Any best bets? Yeah, we, we talked about that uh, earlier, which is, um, standing around and kicking the can down the road with a woe is me attitude that retail's dying isn't the right answer. And trying to figure out um, who's out there, what works in a different market, and how to potentially bring that to your market. So that's if you're a broker, how do you uh, figure out what's working you know, in landlord-tenant relations in other markets? If you're a landlord, sort of going out and finding that tenant. Um, and sometimes, so you'll take, what's interesting is we have an aging population. And uh, one thing I know, my dad's going to be 92 uh, a little after this show airs, and the fact of the matter is, I think he goes to the doctor every day for something, right? Um, so the, where were doctors used to be? Doctors used to be in office buildings. Um, so what do you do? You move them to closer to where the people are, and what do you have? You have a lot of vacancy in retail. Um, urgent care centers, um, that is popping up all over the place in suburbia. So it's those kinds of uses that you see them working in one market, you bring them to another market. Um, retail's in the right place. The retail was put, for the most part, it was put in place. Um, the fact of the matter is there just aren't enough retailers. So you have to find non-retailers to consume that space. And I think, it, I think it works if you just figure it out. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. It's good real estate location-wise. It's got good visibility. Um, it has parking. It has- Close to the people. people well, close to the people. It has signals, yeah. intersections. Yeah. It's got all those things that were required by, by law, by code, by statute in the past. It's just that people don't need another store that sells X. Mm -hmm. So what do you put in that box? And retail is going to become, retail has always been a very localized business. It's going to become even more so. And one of the big opportunities is neighborhood, continues to be urban neighborhood revitalization, uh, neighborhoods that are gentrifying. Finding the right retail and getting in there on the ground floor is something a lot of retailers and people that we talked about in the market are thinking about, is how do I get there? But it's, it's not an easy, we can take this playbook and go, okay, this works everywhere. It's very hands-on, very granular in finding the right, right solution for that market. And if people continue to buy goods digitally and they need to get them, the question is what role does traditional stick-and-brick retail play in being a delivery center for, um, for online purchases of goods? The other thing is on the service side of retail, um, and people sort of forget this, but if you're close to it, you, you don't forget it. Banks are getting out of the branch business in, in, in a big way because their customer base has shifted to being a digital experience. You can deposit checks uh, on your smartphone. So one other thing that's pulling away from the demand for, for retail neighborhood um, locations 
is the fact that banks are having a much smaller footprint. Yeah. What about best bets related to industrial or office? You talked about earlier uh, the office kind of sector changing and, and maybe there needs to be more uh, CapEx been in these buildings. Where are some opportunities there? Really kind of the one that's really kind of emerging or not emerging, re-emerging, is the look, people are looking at the suburban office again. And that all kind of, we, we talked about how things kind of tie together in this year's report and the themes, and that's you know millennials getting older, starting families, looking back at the suburbs. And suburban office owners are starting to look at how do I have an urban feel to my suburban office. And I, there's more movement towards that, whether it's taking an entire campus and virtually creating a little urban city out of it, or just two or three owners getting together and creating those amenities to go with that park. And that's catching on very well, and I think that's probably where we may see more of that in coming years. This is a little bit of a teaser, so if it's a best bet to get in early, that was where that Are would be. Are some of the millennials going to move to suburbia? Yeah. And maybe oh, help they are, out. They, they, are, are they are moving to suburbia. Yeah. The problem is they can't buy the house that they may want because it's either priced too high or it's not for sale. Yeah. It's not for sale because the empty nesters that are in it uh, can't sell it because they need a certain price and the market won't clear at that price. Or the thing that they want to buy, if they sell that, they can't afford. So affordability is sort of becoming a, a little bit of an awful cycle. The other demand driver for suburban office that uh, it's worth noting from a best bet perspective is, again, more medical office opportunities. So there are, when you think medical office, you think of medical office where the whole building is medical office. But if you look in suburbia, more and more buildings are sort of being taken over by doctors and practices. Um, and the one-stop shop model is the answer there. If you go to a doctor and they refer you to get some sort of a test, you don't want to have to get in your car and drive someplace else for the test. You want to be able to literally walk down the hall and do it and have some sort of a concierge there to help direct you from, from physician's office to lab and then back to physician's office. And they're taking over um, big health practices are becoming more and more of a mega trend and they're taking over traditional suburban office buildings and making those their their homes. So you're going to see that across the country, right. I think. And industrial is last mile. It's an yeah. easy one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's still, still yeah. the holy grail. Yeah, and one of the things that Andy and I realized in the taxi coming over here, because our research is last minute here, not only last mile, <laughs> last <laughs> plus is how much industrial is being put in in New York City. Mm -hmm. Right. So why? It's all last mile. The biggest consumption magnet for online retail is New York City and New York City has never been a place where you traditionally had industrial uh, and so what happens you take a big office building in New York that has five stories below sea level of, of space that used to be where file cabinets were for records retention you don't need that space anymore a lot of that space is being repurposed and they're making that warehousing in the city for uh, pickup and delivery so um, uh, you're gonna see more and more industrial uh, maybe vertical industrial and not horizontal industrial. What about best bets for retail, back to retail for a moment, uh, for last mile? Or might we see some yeah. of these retail properties get used as last yeah. mile distribu distribution? Yeah. That's uh, another area that's being highly looked at. Uh, I, Mitch mentioned medical. You look at uh, how many um, drug stores do you need on every corner. They're in a perfect location. I think that's it's almost a regulatory 
question, can you get permission from the city to put in last mile distribution from some of those sites? Yeah. And that, I, it's, people are looking at it. Uh, it's just maybe a little bit more in the early stages and it's almost with the housing you've got to convince the zoning commissions that this is okay and the, the uh, planning and zoning that it's all right to put this here yeah, and have yeah. this and, and one of the realities is is all of the products that are sold digitally are all part of the big data universe so uh, big online retailers whether they be the big names in that industry or folks that um, are selling most of their goods digital only, they know uh, when stuff gets bought, they know how it gets bought, they know who's buying it. And if the hot item you know, in the holiday season is a 60 inch flat screen TV, that's always a big Black Friday um, you know, door buster kind of thing, they'll just ship them before they're even purchased to those locales because they know with great certainty how many units are probably going to get sold? So the question is, you know, how do you how do you do that? Well, the reality is the logistical and data side of it is something that these retailers know better than anything. So um, I think there's a solution to a lot of this in big data. But we said it. You know, there's a lot of things in emerging trends that we're proud of. You heard it here first. We talked about last mile probably about three years ago, and it remains the biggest challenge because you buy something online. I just need, yesterday I needed uh, two cigarette lighter adapters for uh, the car for USB, USB mm -hmm. because there was a pile of them in one of my son's cars and they didn't work and I went nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so the fact of the matter is I ordered them, I just got to notice they're being delivered today. today. I ordered them yesterday. Nice. Like how is that possible? I mean, so best bets, so from your interviews and your studies. Uh, are there any best bets for investment as far as uh, type of property, uh, sector, or maybe a class of property? I mean, you talked about healthcare. Are there any other sectors that kind of look promising for the future? I would say one to look at is senior housing. Uh, so I would, I would put two on that list. One is what Andy said before, it's worth reemphasizing. Reinvest in the existing building as an investment opportunity mm -hmm. as opposed to necessarily buying a new building because you may be able to generate a lot more return per dollar in just reinvesting in the existing property. Mm -hmm. And the other is senior housing. Don't think of it from as an age in place, assisted living to a congregate care and acute care. Think of it more as creating opportunities for baby boomers to live someplace in more of a live-work-play environment. When we thought about live-work-play, we were thinking about millennials. I'm looking at James over there who doesn't get any camera time. Maybe spin <laughs> that camera around, James. But the fact of the matter is, um, we thought about live-work-play as a millennial thing. That was important to them. I, we said a few segments ago that the workforce participation rate for 65 to 74 is the highest it's ever been. So they're still working, but where do they live and where do they play? And if you create some community feel, and it, it may just be taking existing stock and repositioning it, taking parts of cities and repositioning them, there's an interesting play there. So stop thinking of it as seniors, thinking of it as more, let's just take senior out of the equation and talk about it as baby boomer housing. Right. What about multifamily? What's the sentiment of your interviewees mm -hmm. uh, in your report on multifamily, and are there some best bets there? Um, currently, the one thing I'll, I'll give you a warning to people who are watching is 
We've maybe but then the lower third warning, <laughs> warning, warning, warning. <laughs> maybe we've commoditized, we've commoditized <laughs> the uniqueness of downtown urban housing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so there, you know, there's so much of that coming up now. So people are watching how that all gets absorbed. But actually, affordable multifamily housing, uh, very attractive. People are looking at. But it. a lowercase a. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. not no, something not, that yeah. there's government financing Man, coming exactly, from. Right? This is this is stuff that people yeah. can get into. Because there's a belief that uh, the kind of the shift to a lower home ownership percentage in the U.S. is here to stay. Part of it's generational, part of it's uh, choice, part of it's concern over the fact that maybe housing doesn't go up and don't want to go through that downturn again. So that's really, I think, you know, uh, if I had to pick a best bet, people are still looking at that. Go out, find that property that you don't need to do a lot to, uh, a B-minus property that you can upgrade to a B and just take the rents from that. And then maybe down the road you take it to an A if it's in a good location. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't because there's going to continue to be a demand for that property and, going forward. And price, value, affordability, however you want to phrase it, is going to be the decision making. The, the fulcrum of the decision is going to be around mm -hmm. that. So people may be willing to sacrifice um, certain quality elements just so, for affordability. Yeah, yeah, well, that yeah. makes sense. And, and one thing you want to think about when you're investing um, is location location yes, location right much. and i like how you guys you do the research and then you ask the participants you know what they think so we're going to take a short break when we get back we're going to talk about the top cities where you want to invest whether you're a lender maybe you're an investor through crowdfunding maybe you're a developer stay with us i'm michael bull this is america's commercial real estate show video is powerful some of the biggest brands in commercial real estate have trusted us to tell their story we are Barnes Creative Studios, premier commercial real estate video services. BarnesCreativeStudios.com Would you like access to invest in institutional quality commercial real estate with experienced sponsors with small amounts of money? Of course you would. Visit RealCrowd.com. Choose between Core, Core Plus, Value Add, or Opportunistic. Visit RealCrowd.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. This segment is brought to you by Barnes Creative Studios. If you want an incredible video for your next project, visit BarnesCreativeStudios.com. Today we're talking about Emerging Trends in Real Estate 2018. This is an incredible report put out by PwC and ULI. And we have Mitch Rochelle and Andy Warren here, both with PwC, to talk about. And now we're going to talk about kind of the top cities because, you know what, maybe we're investing in crowdfunding, maybe we're investing in loans, maybe we're investing in properties or developing them, and it'd be nice to put them in the right place, right? Invest Location? In the, right. <laughs> I've heard that's important in real estate, right? <laughs> so um, we're, we're in Atlanta, so I have to ask you, I'm curious about Atlanta, where I'm headquartered, where did it place? So you have, what, the top 78 that you list in the report? 78. Okay, so where did... Atlanta show up. 17. 17. That's not bad. That's not it's, bad. That's not bad. It had been in the top 10 two years ago, maybe? Two years ago. And mm -hmm. uh, the concern was a little bit of a herd mentality, mm -hmm. people starting to rush to it, um, so it, it fell down. But uh, being in the top 20 is respectable. So Thank, yeah, very respectable. All right, so let's go to the top 10 now. And <laughs> well, let me tell you who's not in the top 20. How okay. about San Francisco, who's no. been perennially wow. in the top 10? How about New York City that's not in the top uh, 20? Uh, so that's what's, wow. that's what's sort of happened. 
uh, those gateway cities which we talked about earlier that just seem very, very expensive. Listen, the amount of capital flowing in and out of New York isn't really changing, but from an investment opportunity perspective, people are seeing that it, it's not. So, ha hashtag who to thunk it. Right? Who to yeah, thunk I mean, it. Exactly. A couple of years ago, I'm going to get to this in a second. Um, so back in the top 10 after a multi-year vacation, Boston. Boston, are they number 10? They are number 10. Number nine is Nashville. And interestingly, two years ago when we put the, the media packages together for Emerging Trends, and by the way, Euro is our first stop. You should, you should you. be honored by thank that. You, thank you very much. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I was saying that Nashville was the new New York because New York had fallen out of the top 10 and lo and behold, Nashville had made it in. So Nashville's now in its third year. San Jose. Uh, so San Jose has sort of replaced um, San Francisco, and there's going to be a theme which we're going to cut through. Uh, last year, San Jose was 17. Forgive me, we're early in the cycle. I haven't memorized these yet. Um, uh, Los Angeles uh, is number seven. New to the top ten, never been there before, Fort Lauderdale. Mm. Wow. Place Michael probably went for spring break when he was in college. <laughs> Too bad there's no smartphones in those days because those yeah. pictures would be worth something. <laughs> um, net last year's number one spot holder, Dallas-Fort Worth, has fallen down to, no, last year was Austin. Two years ago was Dallas-Fort Dallas, Worth, right? right? Uh, has fallen down to number five. Uh, Raleigh-Durham uh, has moved up to number four. Wow. That market, though, when you're there, uh, they view Raleigh-Durham as, Raleigh and Durham as two separate markets, but the MSA is merged as Raleigh-Durham. Mm -hmm. Uh, new to the top 10 also, last year number 18, this year number 3, Salt Lake City. Wow. Uh, last year's number 1 is now number 2, Austin, Texas. And the number 1, do we have a drum roll sound back there anyway? <laughs> the number 1 city, uh, you want to guess? No, that would be embarrassing if you got it wrong, Michael, on a show that's got your own yeah, name yeah. on it. So why don't we uh, tell everybody it's Seattle. Seattle. Seattle is number 1. Wow. Uh, the most common question I get from people is, did anything surprise you? And I'll start right there. I was surprised that Seattle was number one. Um, I thought like San Francisco, it was starting to get a little frothy price-wise. Um, but if you look at the concentration of big employers that are creating jobs in that market and the diversity of the employment base, Seattle still uh, remains very strong. And it's really more about job creation and demographics than anything else, and Seattle's got that going for it. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a minute. So what creates the top 10 uh, in your minds from a, from a data standpoint, and then from your interviewees, you know, what, what makes it a top 10 city for them? Notice I'm turning, turning you from a data perspective. Yeah, yeah. Then I get the call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, really, it's there's, there, the main trends kind of running underneath these are younger population, lower cost of doing business. There's a couple of exceptions on there that we can kind of touch on where they're at, and just attractiveness, livability, and people coming in there. And Seattle has that in spades. Has a lot going on. We run into the issue where some of these markets are on our, at the top of the list for a while and then they get, maybe they get too successful and we see a little bit of a drop. Like That's, in San Francisco. Like in San Francisco, like in Dallas, the mm -hmm. drop to number four, yeah. a lot of activity in Dallas-Fort Worth this year. People are beginning to kind of pull back and that's from the interviewees. Dallas is a market where about split 50-50. Some people love it, want to be there. Some people say now's the time to get out. So you kind of have that kind of split for those markets. It's also Dallas is a, a boom-bust market. You know, Texas uh, doesn't have some of the zoning barriers entry that other states and other cities have. Um, so it tends to get overbuilt. 
so that makes no sense That's as to why Austin is number two. Right. Austin just Austin is in a niche by itself where it just kind of holds on there, and I'm not sure if the people that rank it that highly every year, I think it's on their wish list, yeah. <laughs> and, and they just kind of keep it there because it is such a small market in terms of what's going on. Yeah, but here, here's what I'll say about Austin, just uh, taking a page out of the data yeah. portion. The U.S. millennial population, actually, one of the things we're doing in a report this year is we're merging a little bit of Gen Z and into the millennials because we're trying to get that cohort of making the first decisions about housing and jobs and, and so forth. Um, but that that cohort of 15 to 30, 30-ish, 30. Um, that cohort is about 2% or so of the U.S. population, right, And uh, in terms of growth. Growth, right. right? Yeah. And uh, the growth in... Um, Austin is 20 percent, right? It's huge. So, and I believe that percentage, that cohort's percentage of the population in, in absolute number of individuals is 30 percent, and in Austin is 35 percent, right? Right. So, uh, it's that explosive growth in millennial population in many of mm -hmm. these cities that really lines up with why people, you know, use the number two pencil and circle Austin. Um, when one of the things I thought when Austin showed up in the top ten for the first time. Uh, the survey was alphabetical, and I was like, "Oh, they're picking Atlanta and Austin, <laughs> number one." Uh, number two. Just, and you know, and you know, I, I guess Seattle, you know, <laughs> never got. They ran out of number two pencil. But fact of the matter is, um, there's really compelling data on a demographics and job creation perspective. The thing to keep an eye on is affordability of living, because when affordability of living gets too high. That's when the market tends to sort of overheat a little bit because, and we've said this in the past on this show, the virtuous cycle of affordable living and affordable, uh, the affordability of doing business is what keeps employers there and keeps employees there. And when employers are going there and employees are going there, you get into a nice virtuous cycle. And that's exactly what's happening in some of those cities. Raleigh-Durham, that's the case. Nashville, that's the case. Austin, that's the case. Um, Fort Lauderdale. And so the other thing I mentioned about Salt Lake City and Fort Lauderdale, is there more affordable alternatives too? So Salt Lake City is a more affordable alternative to Denver um, for those people who like the sort of altitude, uh, using that word again, uh, environment. Uh, you've got a lot of startups in Seattle. Startups are finding Denver a little, um, I meant Salt Lake City, they're finding Denver a little bit too pricey. So they're going to the more affordable alternative Salt Lake City. Um, you also have a university there. Um, which seems to be a common theme across a lot of the top mm -hmm. ten. And then Fort Lauderdale is a uh, more affordable alternative to Miami. Right. And from a generational perspective, if it's attractive to the young people, getting back to kind of the boomers again, if they're not retiring and they're not moving to Florida, which oh, some are moving to Fort Lauderdale, they're moving to where the kids are. They want to be close to the grandkids. So a lot of these markets in the top ten are kind of attractive to both of those cohorts. Wow. So they're kind of pulling from both, which is kind of helping, uh, definitely a case in Salt Lake City. Fort Lauderdale's benefiting from that, Raleigh. Yeah. And that's an interesting point that uh, yeah. the baby boomers, when they get ready to, to retire, semi-retire, mm -hmm. uh, moving toward where their kids are. Some people don't yep. want to be away from their kids. But <laughs> exactly. you know, maybe. There's been long, right. it's the grandkids are moving closer to <laughs> Right. <laughs> But just going on the grandkids yeah. uh, theory, so this is Census Bureau um, data, okay? This is the, uh, the grandkid chasers. Jacksonville, Miami, uh, Phoenix, Raleigh, Durham, Tampa, St. Pete, 
um, Fort Lauderdale, Charleston, Charlotte, and Nashville. So those are places where the grandparents are going to be proximate to the grandkids. So it's really, again, another element of the demographics playing a role in that virtuous cycle. And several yeah. of those markets have kind of economies that can support if you hit the word semi-retire. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can, maybe you pull back a little bit and you want to stay active, you can do it in these but markets. If, the but to that point, Andy, if yeah. the economy is growing and we've got mm -hmm. those 65 to 74 yeah. year olds who statistically are um, driving up that portion, portion of the workforce participation rate, their part-time job opportunities are there. Yeah. And again, Definitely. the theme on this is Miami, you've got education. Um, mm -hmm. Raleigh-Durham, you've got a ton of education. Um, Nashville, Charlotte, a ton of higher education. There seems to be a gravitation towards higher education, whether it's the arts and culture that are tied to it, or even um, just opportunities in teaching in retirement. Mm -hmm. There's just a whole lot of that that's compelling for aging baby boomers um, who want to be proximate to where their kids are. And the kids graduate from those schools and tend to stay in those communities. So it's a, it's, a, it's a nice cycle that we're in in some of these places. And when I joke about the distance from your children, if my children are watching, <laughs> I, I want to be really close to you too. I so, do. Uh, do they watch? <laughs> they better. <laughs> so before we go, we have you here at Studio One. You guys are real involved in this project of putting out this report. What would you say would be one of the things that kind of come out, come out of the report this year that maybe surprised you or it's a theme that maybe you're going to think about in your investment dollars moving forward? Um, probably the biggest surprise to me kind of coming out of this was the lack of fear over a black swan. And so just that kind of that comfort and that willingness to go. So I would look at some of these growing markets that maybe you would have been hesitant to go into before because I think that growth, you're going to be positioned for this cycle, continue through the end of that, then if we do have a downturn, those markets are going to be positioned for the way up and probably will lead the next way up. Were you a little surprised then about the positive nature and response of the interviewees? Yeah, it was actually overall, uh, this is my fifth year of working on it, this was the most positive tone I've probably heard out of the interviewees in that time period. Yeah. Um, I'd say this on um, positive tone, there is the nuance of a little bit of the shift for people who thought that the prospects for 18 were excellent right. in the past and now they're saying they're just good. good. So yeah. Yeah. There's, they're, they're still enthusiastic, mm -hmm. but there's a little bit of a slippage in their enthusiasm, so that's something we'll watch. Yeah. The thing that surprised me the most was the Fort Lauderdale's, um, Salt Lake City's uh, being in that top 10. Um, that's an overall trend that we've seen, you know, go, dating back to when Austin made it to the top 10 and how all of these gateway cities have been pushed out. But I was very surprised by Fort Lauderdale um, and a little bit surprised as well by Salt Lake City. Um, and I think that that really speaks to where, to your question, where capital's going, um, that they're trying to get to the place before everybody else does. Because once you get the yeah. herd mentality, then stuff, cap rates get compressed and people aren't interested anymore. So. One word answer, if you're gonna invest in a specific commercial real estate sector, what sector? Multifamily. Do family? That's two words. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Apartment. <laughs> um, housing. housing. There you go. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, excellent, gentlemen. Thanks yeah. for joining us. Great information as usual. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. And congrats on seven day. years Thank in you. commercial real estate. Thank show. you very much. And if you haven't checked yeah. out this report, we'll have a link below. 
uh, whether in YouTube or iTunes or the show website, uh, check it out. And I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, Comment, uh, share it. We appreciate uh, hearing from you. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, Asset and Occupancy Solutions, CommercialAgentSuccess.com, Better Serve Clients, Earn More Commissions, Excelligent, Building Data Everywhere, Real Crowd, Crowdfunding with the Professionals, Get Valuate, Online Investment Analysis, Build Out, Marketing for Your Brokerage. For more information on these great companies, visit CREshow.com. And you're invited to subscribe to the show on YouTube and iTunes and connect with us on your favorite social media.